Welcome to our next episode in our Work Healthy podcast series. I'm John Ryan and thanks for joining us. You know, it's not every day that you get a chance to interview a former monk, but that was the case today. Panda Dasa was a monk in New York City for 15 years of his life, and he's learned a lot about himself during that time and what the world is all about. Over the next 45 minutes, we'll chat about the mind and its role in shaping our thoughts and emotions. We'll discover where our thoughts come from and how you can become more like a bee rather than a fly in our attempts to control our thoughts. If you've ever wondered about the difference between mindfulness and meditation, we'll clear that up and we'll chat about mental fitness. I started the interview by asking Panda whether our mind is our worst enemy or our best friend. Well, I think, first of all, John, I think you have to decide that for yourself. And, and I don't think it's either or because we could go throughout one day and in, in, in that same day, it could be our best friend. And the next hour, it could be our worst enemy. And then it could become a companion. And then it could again be our worst enemy. So, it, you know, we go through an entire day where our mind is constantly shifting from thought to thought, from different events in our life are impacting our mind, different interactions we're having with people are affecting our mind and our thought process. So our mind goes from friend to enemy, friend to enemy, to neutral. You know, it, it goes just like when you're driving a car, sometimes it's in park, sometimes they put it in reverse, sometimes it's in neutral, sometimes it's in drive, sometimes it's in overdrive, yeah. right? And the driving process involves all of those. And so our mind can, it does go through all of those phases. Now, the thing is that it is, so what does it mean for it to be our worst enemy, right? So just to analyze that means coming up with worst case scenarios about stuff, right? Oh my gosh, if I lose my job in, in next month, and maybe there's no even fear of losing your job, you just decide to think about it, right? Oh my gosh, how am I going to pay my bills? How's that going to affect my relationship? Am I going to be able to afford my house? Like you just go down this dark road and then you realize like everything is fine and, and nothing happened except you just went on this like little nightmare in your mind and made our own day really bad, right? So, so or judging people unnecessarily, right? Just being critical of people, judging people, finding like their fault as opposed to finding the good in people. So this is all considered where our mind becomes our worst enemy and our mind causes us so much stress by ha having these negative thoughts play in our head over and over and over again, right? Where our mind can be our best friend is, and of course this is a quite an elevated level and I'm not saying that I'm at that level, is that even if something isn't going the way we want it to, if something is going wrong, we remind ourselves that this is not going the way I wanted it to, but there's still some amazing lessons I'll probably learn from this. I'll probably gain some maturity and wisdom out of this thing that seems to be falling apart. And maybe I need this to happen right now, even though it feels miserable, right? So at one part of the day, you could be just feeling, you wake up and you feel grateful for your life, for your job. And then something happens and later in the day, you have an argument with someone. You're like, oh, life is terrible. So you can see the mind can switch gears throughout the day. Within one hour, you can have many gear shifts of the mind. So it's a little bit of both. And the key is to train it to be more our best friend mm -hmm. than our worst enemy.
Okay, and I, I mean, in the book, I think you brilliantly uh, describe it as a crazy roommate who won't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's just nonstop. I mean, I read one article in Psychology Today that said that the mind can, average person can have between 25,000 and 50,000 thoughts a day, right? So that's one to 2,000 thoughts an hour. That's now, exhausting. Yeah, it is exhausting. Like, we don't realize it. a lot of times we can't sleep not because something happening outside of us, but something's happening inside of us. It is that roommate that we allowed to move in and we didn't check references, right? <laughs> so I think now we have to accept that we have this roommate and now can we learn to get along with this roommate? Can we find a middle ground, train this? Or sometimes I like to think of the mind like a puppy. If you train it, it'll be your best friend. It'll protect you. It'll take care of you. If you don't, it'll tear everything apart and make a mess all over the house. And I think sometimes our mind can be like that untrained puppy. And what's unfortunate, I think about this a lot. I'm like, how is it that our entire schooling system from the time we're kids, never just academia, let's go play sports, learn math, science, history, but the most powerful tool that you have up here, let's leave that untrained. It's like getting a pit bull and say, you know what? There's no need to train. Let's just bring it into our house from the street. No need to train. Like you have something that powerful. It requires a little training. I am so with you on that. I, I think the educational system really has to be just deconstructed and reconstructed because even just one thing is uh, the decisions you make in your life are the most important things that will define you. And we don't teach people and train people about decision making. I mean, it's so critical, but but this is it. So the, the mind... There, we're not given um, a, a manual, a training manual uh, to kind of read up this. So we kind of we, we kind of just go on autopilot. And that's very dangerous, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we don't trust self-driving cars just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so why should we trust our mind? Because when you analyze the nature of the mind, you realize it doesn't always think very positively. And if we let it go on autopilot, we don't know where it'll end up. And a lot of times it makes us believe things about other people that just aren't true. Mm. Like we form opinions about, like we will judge people if we just see them on the street or even at work based on the way they dress. Maybe they didn't smile the way we wanted them to. Maybe they didn't feel like smiling right now. Maybe they had a bad morning or maybe the way they're eating their bagel or who knows what, we will just judge people. So we can't let our mind go on autopilot. I think that is, you know, I'm not saying that the mind shouldn't wander once in a while, even though my book is called, you know, Mindfulness yeah. of the Wandering Mind. Yeah. Um, but it's okay for the mind to relax and wander and think about life and daydream a little, that's all okay, right? But when it's on autopilot and judging people and finding the worst in people, right? That's where we can't leave it on autopilot. I remember when I was living as a monk, one of uh, my teachers would use this great example. He said, we can choose whether our mind is like a fly or like a bee. So if you have a garden, where is the fly going to go to the dirtiest part of the garden? It's going to find the filth and it's going to land on that filth. That's what mm. the fly will do. There could be roses everywhere, beautiful <laughs> flowers, fragrant, colors vibrant 
but it'll find the filth. It'll go sit on that and it'll go suck on that filth. We're sorry to get so graphic. Yeah, no, you're right. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and then you can have the bee. It'll ignore the filth and go right to the, there could be one flower growing in a heap of garbage. It will go to that flower and take the nectar from that flower. Yeah. So he would always say like, what kind of mind do you, you want? Do you want the fly mentality or do you want the bee mentality? And it is every single person's choice, which kind of mind we want. It is our choice. And what's interesting is gradually we can become self-aware to recognize that my mind is going down, is becoming a fly right now. Hmm. I can choose to bring it back out and say, hey, I just thought of something negative about that person. What right do I have to judge? Let me think of something positive. Oh, I don't even know that person. So how can I think of something positive? Well, that means I have no right to think of something negative either. Mm. And right? then, you're so bang on and I love it. I, I, because one of the things that I think is, is really clear is that we kind of have to separate ourselves from our thoughts because most people actually think we are our thoughts. Can you just help me to do to work that out and this separation that needs to happen? We nearly need to step outside our bodies and, and look at ourselves from afar. Yeah, this is a difficult concept to grasp and to even really help people understand until first we have to realize we have a mind, mm. that we are not the mind, right? That in itself is not an easy thing to understand for most of us. It took me forever to get like, what does it mean we have a mind? And that we're not the mind because you see here's one example of how our mind does is on autopilot it's doing whatever it wants not at, and we realize we're not in control of it right now so let's say you're having a face-to-face -face conversation with someone and i think we've had the experience where our mind starts to drift away to start thinking about something else and then at that moment you're no longer listening to that person mm. even though you're physically standing in front of that person your ears are open but the words coming out of their mouth aren't being registered by the brain because I'm thinking about my grocery list yeah. or I'm thinking about what I'm going to be doing over the weekend. And then you come back 10 seconds later, a little scared that did they realize you were gone? <laughs> right. And so we, at that moment, you realize that actually I didn't do that voluntarily. Right. I, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Like I picking up my phone now, that's me doing it. Mm. But when that went, that was automatic. It did it on its own. It's almost like a separate entity living inside our head. Yeah. Right. And I, I don't want to get too weird here, but. No, it's but like, it's, it's, it's important, you know, because yeah, that's the truth. Yeah. Like I'm choosing to turn my fan on and off. I'm choosing to do that. But if I'm having a conversation with you and I start thinking about what I'm going to do over the weekend and that wasn't voluntary. That means our mind is doing its own thing and our thoughts are just on their own. So that wasn't me, my mind. And then I chose to bring it back when I realized what's it doing that I, wait, wait, I'm having a conversation with someone. So that it's, and when we catch ourselves drifting to random places without our choosing to do so, that's when you start to understand I have a mind and I'm having thoughts, but I'm not those thoughts. If I have a horrible thought about hurting someone, I'm not that person. The thought was there, but doesn't mean I'm going to act on it. And that's so true. I mean, so really, this is now a weird question, but where are those thoughts coming from? Because I think everybody has had those really bad thoughts that we don't want to be associated with. 
See, and, and I don't know if there's a real accurate answer to that question, because I, I, what I think, I think my own thoughts on where thoughts come from is every single experience we've had in this life mm. is generating those thoughts. Mm. Because every sense, the eyes, the nose, the ears, the mouth, the touch, these are all knowledge acquiring sort of senses. We're always acquiring knowledge and experience through these. Yeah. And you can imagine how many, just take a moment to think about how many experiences do the senses have in a 24 hour period? I mean, it's gotta be in the tens of millions, maybe billions, right? Mm. Just everything you, I touch my computer, I touch my glass, I touch my phone, or I'm just feeling people, this person saying this person, and I'm seeing every time you look around in your room, there's at least 50 things to see in just in your room. Mm. You've got your blinds, you've got your paintings, you've got the clock, you've got the uh, so many things. And then this is inside the one room. You've got your house, you walk out, you drive around, got millions of sounds and sights. Yeah. All of this somehow enters all of the, through the senses, goes into the mind, and then the mind, I don't know how it's doing. It's using all of this <laughs> to come up with stuff, right? And that combined with our upbringing, our cultural upbringing, the things we were taught at home, at school, with friends, from the news, all of this is creating our thoughts. And there's billions of impressions going in on a regular basis that are influencing the kind of thoughts that we're having. And that that kind of, you know, um, growing up through the years, um, does that determine whether or not we're more positive in our outlook or negative, as in, are we pessimistic thinkers? Are we optimistic thinkers? Are we looking, you know, maybe uh, do I develop into a slightly insecure person and therefore I'm actually super critical and judge, you know, you talk about being judgmental um, and that being quite a negative force in my life and the like and uh, those kind of things. So is, is is that where that's coming from? And you brilliantly talk about the windscreen wipers where they're, they're going back into your past and then going into your future and never kind of being right here in the present. So if you could chat about that, please. Yeah, one million percent. It's all coming from our upbringing, right? A mm. lot of it. Uh, and and of course, it doesn't mean we can't change it. Again, like I go back to the idea of the mind being a puppy. It can, if the mind is trainable. If we were raised in an insecure family, of like financially insecure, whatever it is, and we yep. grew up with that, it doesn't, everything is changeable. We're, we are trainable human beings. We're trainable, humans, animals, we're all trainable. It just, if we find ourselves, if we're determined to make that change, we can. Now imagine we've talked about the windshield wiper and the autopilot and the mind just being out of control in our worst. And now imagine somebody with that kind of a mind, right? Hasn't been trained on it, ends up in a leadership role in a major organization, overseeing hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people. Just imagine the kind of chaos that would be generated from an individual who hasn't learned to manage their mind and as a result haven't, hasn't learned to manage their emotions, their thoughts, their speech, their behavior, the consequences of all of this on other people, right? That is a frightening, and imagine if that person becomes a leader of a nation at some point without that kind of training. That is a, 
I mean, and it's happened quite often throughout history. It's not a it's not like, oh, when it happens. No, that's usually what happens, right? And a lot of people end up in leadership roles simply because of how productive they've been, but not necessarily a trained mind that can be also kind to people, caring towards others, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. it, to answer your question, yet yeah, we are trainable, 100%. And, you know, when, when, when I, just to add on to this, and I'm not taking any sides on politics here, it's just not my cup of tea, really. Um, but when I see some of these candidates debating, right, these debates, yeah. I look at that and I'm like, wow, these are very intelligent people. They're materially very successful. They're very educated. And they're supposed to be very cultured. And now, right, you would say, technically, they're very sophisticated people. They've had good upbringings and they're successful. They're wealthy and all of that. And I'm like, wow. In front of the entire nation and on the and in front of the entire globe, we're seeing mature men and women criticize, talk down, talk over one another, almost like a high school playground where kids are bickering and fighting. And I'm like, wow, what kind of training have they had about their mind and emotions? I'm like, well, they may know how to cut their food properly with a knife and fork. And you know, put the napkin in properly and dress yeah. properly, but there's no control over their mental behavior because they're setting an example for the rest of the nation, especially the kids. Hey, by the way, you're allowed to talk down to people, criticize people, find fault with people, and really just bash them to get ahead. Like that's okay in our country to do that. And I'm like, what an embarrassment. I'm really, I hate to say it, but I'm like, it's embarrassing. Like these are the people that are fighting to be my leader. I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah. Un- unfortunately, we don't have wonderful role models for people who are, you know, have high levels of emotional self-regulation and uh, maybe self-awareness in, in totality. Um, I think politics is probably one of the worst worlds you can possibly go to, to kind of see that. Um, and I suppose I, I'd say sometimes they're a little bit of a reflection of of people in general themselves. So that that's a, a that's another world to go into. But in terms of this, I mean, so you obviously I explained at the start, you you spent 15 years as a monk. So you went on this journey of kind of trying to go deep into your own mind. And I'm interested just to know what, what were the different levels of enlightenment that, that came to you about that whole area of trying to get to know who you are, uh, the good and the bad, and then the ability to actually start to, to manage your, your thoughts uh, on, a, on a constant basis? There are, <laughs> you know, that one of the first things that happened when I started meditating regularly, living with monks and just really having open dialogue with them is you start to realize that some of the things that I thought were totally okay with with just the way I was interacting with society and life, like, well, they're not actually okay. If there's something, if there's a fault that I have, there's a weakness that I have, instead of just pretending that, hey, this is normal, that's just me. Hey, you got to accept me for who I am. Like, no, I'm like, that's a real sorry excuse for not wanting to make a change, mm. right? So one of the first things that happened for me was, and what was encouraging the monasteries to have a humble attitude for the purpose of changing oneself. Because if we don't approach life with humility, then we can never make any changes in our own character because we think we're perfect the way we are. 
or that we're fine the way we are, and this is who I am, and this is how people need to accept me. I'm like, okay, but can I be better? Sure I can. So I think that was one of the first levels was just like having like a, some level of humility and openness to accepting my own flaws and shortcomings and faults, because without that, you really can't take the next step in progressing and self-development. You have to recognize it and say, yeah, wow, okay, I have a tendency to perhaps maybe I get angry at people really quickly. And maybe sometimes that's not such a good thing. And now I can see how that's hurt my relationships. And, and now I can see that that relationship that I thought was someone else's fault was actually partly mine as well. <laughs> you're right, because sometimes you're like, it's only that person's fault and, and that's it. You know, I'm God's gift to this world and somehow they couldn't see that. And so one of the, the most important things is that self-reflection and taking a humble approach to recognize I'm not perfect, I have flaws, I need to work on them and, and that's okay. And that's okay. And that, that that's necessary, right? So I think that's one of the key things in terms of going deep and understanding. And it's not easy because when you acknowledge that you have weaknesses, it doesn't feel good. Mm, absolutely. Almost a little embarrassing. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm a little embarrassed. I, I didn't even, because we don't, we've never really spent time looking in the mirror, not physically the mirror, but just like really yeah. looking in the mirror. Yeah understand what like you know you look in the mirror and you say oh my shirt's not buttoned properly oh my tie's not on properly or my this needs to be fixed but how can we look inside there's no real mirror for us to look inside that means we have to close our eyes and go inward and analyze ourselves and our behavior and our past tendencies and really take an honest look and see what where have i where do i need to improve and in order for that to happen we have to be able to put our sort of faults on the table and look at them, no matter how comfortable it is to look at them. Did it change your mind as to what success is and what a successful life is? 100%, because prior to being a monk, when I was living in LA, my parents were very successful at one point. Yep. The goal of life was have a lot of money, have nice cars, have nice clothes, and show it off to everyone. Mm. Let everybody know what you've got and what they don't have, right? And so that's kind of, that was kind of the mindset. And maybe, I don't know, it was me, but I think that's a lot of people probably have like, hey, you get things to show it off to other people, right? And then I remember the first six months of my time in the monastery, which was actually in India. And then the rest of it was in New York City. It was a life of simplicity, right? So I was sleeping on a hardwood floor. It was communal living with like 50, 40 other monks. The bathrooms were communal. The sleeping space was communal. Nobody had their room, that nobody had their own bed. Nobody even had a mattress. You just found a space on the floor and slept there. And the rest of the day was spent serving one another and serving the community. And so I started to realize I feel a certain contentment now that I didn't when we were millionaires in LA. And I was like, what's going on here? What, what, what's really happening here? And I realized that we don't need a lot to be happy. We just need the right family, friends, and environment to experience deep happiness. Now, 
I don't want this message to be misunderstood because I think money is important. It's very important. It brings conveniences and comforts into our life that just takes away maybe that pinch that sometimes life gives us. It makes things a little, a lot easier. So I'm not saying we shouldn't work hard and be successful and earn money. It's just that on a deep level, we really need good relationships. Yeah. That is what's really going to make us happy. So you can have, because a lot of times what happens is when we're ultra successful and ultra driven, we tend to neglect our relationships with people, friends, forget it. We don't go to their birthdays. We're not just wishing them birthday or happy new year. We forget about that. Even a family, we can do that. And therefore we isolate ourselves. And at one point we realize we have no friends and family. We got the car, the house and the pool, but I'm alone swimming in it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's it's no fun at all. So so for for those that, that that's interesting that, that that was your new perspective now and um and then you chose to leave that life after fifteen years, and now you're in a completely new life. What what's that transition been like? So initially it was not easy because I spent fifteen years living as a monk, and after that, you know, I there was two reasons that I left. One was I felt the need to have a family. I wanted to get married and have a family. I just felt that inside. Just like before moving into the monastery, I felt like renouncing everything and exploring myself and exploring what the universe had to offer, right? So I kind yeah. of dove in with that passion. And then I was like, okay, I think I've made a decent amount of discovery and now I want to move on with a different part of my life. And then for 15 years, I was speaking on college campuses on these same topics, stress management, work life, around the country. I was traveling and, you know, around the U.S., and then I wanted to take this knowledge to corporate America and just corporations in general. And so those were the two reasons I transitioned out of the monastic life. And initially it wasn't easy because I wasn't sure how I was going to do that. How am I going to go into corporations and talk? I'm a monk, but people aren't going to respect that. Like, okay, you were a monk. That sounds cool, but we're not sure if we want to hire you to talk to our leadership team or help people become more balanced. Um, but... I think I was, so there was some anxiety on how that was going to actually happen. And, but I think through goodwill or some blessings, some good luck, good karma, whatever it was, the first four or five opportunities to speak, one was at Google, one was at Intel, one was at Novartis, Brilliant. and one was at like Bank of America. Like it just, people invited me to these events to speak there. Those who had known me, because they knew I could speak, they knew I had a good message. And I was just like, oh, how did I just end up here? So I felt that, you know, some, some goodwill, some good karma was coming my way. And then I used that to kind of continue to do that gradually. So it wasn't the easiest transition. It did take me a good couple of years. Mm. I would say at least two to three years to get somewhat my footing before it actually became like a full-time regular thing. So it was exciting. And I'm so grateful that I get to do kind of what I was doing as a monk, which was yeah, teaching, yeah. speaking. And you know, during the time as a monk, I probably did about a thousand talks. Wow. Like no joke, you know, in that in that 15 year period. And so I'm lucky that I get to do a similar thing. Of course, the message now is secular because I'm in corporations. At yeah. that time, it was a little more spiritual. Yeah. I was dealing with college students and yeah. professors who invite me to speak to their classrooms of philosophy and religion and journalism. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that I get to still talk about mindfulness and mindful leadership and workplace culture, like I'm still doing something that helps improve people's 
day-to-day life and work experience. And I'm and, so and, and just on that one, uh, could, could you just explore a little bit the difference between the spirituality piece and and religion? I, I like I, I'm often fascinated that like religion has nearly become a bad word, <laughs> like and the people go, oh, I'm, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. And, you know, um, how, how do you see the differences between those two? So I think the reason people are getting so turned off from religion is because it can become quite fanatic mm. because religions usually mean an institution where a group of like-minded people of a like faith come together. And when you get a bunch of people of the same type of believe in the same philosophy come together, they have a tendency to block out outside perspectives. Anyone who challenges that is shunned and rejected that means where's my free thinking? So I think a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to be in that environment. Like I could believe in everything, but I, I can still be okay if someone's an atheist. Like I'm, if someone says I don't believe in God, I'm not going to lose sleep that night. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not going to try to convince them that there's a God. Yeah. They're on their own journey. Well, exactly. let them be on their own journey. You've got bills to pay. You've got family. Just go mind your own business, right? So I think what happens is the reason, I, this is my thought, that reason people are tired of religion is because religion means you institutionalized. And when you get a bunch of people together, it becomes a herd mentality where anything that's a little different from the philosophy, someone says something a little different, you become defensive because it affects your own faith. So I think therefore people have gone to the spiritual path. We're like, hey, we want to be open to exploring everything. So when I was doing work at Columbia University, New York University, I would have people coming to my spiritual discussions and meditations from all faith backgrounds. Like it was like Buddhists, Jews, Christians, atheists, agnostics, Hindus, Jains, they would just show up and I kept things broad. Even though I was part of a particular faith, I kept it broad, let them talk about it, let them discuss. And that's how I want it to be. So I think there that's the reason people get turned off because mm. they want to be able to remain open in their thinking, which is how it should be. But that sense of spirituality is that, that openness to exploring the inner mind and the purpose and the meaning of what life is all about and I think that's that's an interesting thing that people should because one of the monks I think uh, said that it's important to have an earthquake in your life now and again so that it actually forces you into that space that sometimes and particularly with social media people don't go into that space they they think of it for a second and then they go I have to distract myself now with social media or the like I'm just I'm just interested because I know we're running out of time so just in in terms of two sets of people um to to talk to so let's say the employees of organizations who who are maybe struggling with mental health at the moment this in your book I was very struck by uh, the fact that you sort of say there's certain things you shouldn't say to those people and and I would have actually said, I, I probably said one of those things. I would have probably tried to give them a sense of maybe it's not too bad. Like, but you're saying, no, 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 don't go there. So what advice do you give those people? Well, some of the things, if, if somebody acknowledges that they're going through depression or anxiety or just feeling down or having a hard time getting out of bed, I think some of the things that we shouldn't do, and we're not trained in it, so we, we might probably will end up saying the wrong thing. One thing is we don't want to be dismissive of it of what they're going through. Because like, if I have a broken arm, I can see it. And I'm like, oh, that must hurt, right? Uh, oh, you've got a cast on, oh, that's gotta be painful. 
but if something is going on up here, I can't see that. So my, I'm like, well, hey, you're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. So many people have it worse than you, right? Like that's the kind of stuff, you know, oh, just try to be positive. Like, wait, it's almost like, it's almost like saying you see somebody with a broken ankle say, come on, just run around the block. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Snap. Like, that's literally <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, it's like exactly like that. You see somebody broken ankle and say, Hey, just run around the block. You'll be fine. If someone's depressed saying, Hey, you're going to be fine. It's like, it's like a slap in the face because it's like, you totally didn't understand what I was saying. And it's going to make them feel worse. Right. So I think if we, and, and the, on the other side, we don't want to turn into someone's therapist unless we have a therapy degree or license. Yeah. Right. So sometimes you might think, okay, I think I know how to help them. Just, just be present for them. Say, Hey, this must be very painful. Um, please let me know if there's something I can do to support you and encourage you. If there's anything I can do practically to help you, please let me know. I just want you to know that I'm trying to understand what you're going through. It must be painful, but I, I'm, I'm here to support you. And if you need to talk to me, I'm available for you, right? Even just letting somebody know that and giving them that space, that acknowledgement, that in itself can be a big help. And then practically, if, if they reach out to us to help, maybe we can help them with practical things, maybe helping them find a therapist or whatever it is really being there for them. And the second uh, grouping is the leaders of organizations because they're so, they've got a big opportunity area here, I think anyway, and they've been asked more and more to uh, supply a degree of support for people's mental health. Is the narrative, does the narrative need to change away from mental health to mental fitness and see this as a skill that you're, you're building within your people. And then if you could also just help people understand the difference between uh, mindfulness and meditation and try and debunk, you know, when, when leaders sort of say, oh, not that stuff, you know, uh, can you show them that it's relevant to the workplace of today? Yeah, so I do really like the idea of rephrasing it to mental fitness because that's what it really is. Right. We know how to take care of our body. We don't know how to exercise the mind. Right. Like when you meditate and your mind wanders and then you bring it back and then wanders again to your to do list, and you bring it back. That bringing it back is fitness. That's like doing push ups for your mind. You're training the mind. Oh, come back to the present. Come back to the present. Come back to the present. Right. It's like doing push ups or jogging or whatever it may be. So I really like the idea of calling it mental fitness because mental health makes it sound like I've got a problem. Yeah. Right? Mental fitness sounds exciting. Like, whoa, that sounds cool. Let me get fit, right? So I do think that rephrasing of it could have a major impact on the way people deal with it, right? And so, but I think also that the leaders have to lead by example in this regard. They need to be mentally fit themselves. They can't be completely losing it up there and expect their workforce because it all trickles down from the top to the bottom so if the leaders can't just be talking about work-life balance and mental health and mental fitness and their mental fitness is completely out of whack right that that can't happen and because what i think is that if you're taking only if, if you're only taking care of your body but not actively taking care of the mind through meditation and mindfulness it's like taking your car to the car wash but never to the mechanic hmm. Good It'll idea. look shiny like and on the outside, like but on the inside, it's not going to get you where you need to be as a leader. Mm. You're not going to get it's the vehicle will not get you to where you want to be if you haven't changed the oil. It's just not, no matter how shiny it is. And if you know, we take it to the car wash every day, right? We can put on a nice shirt and look good for Instagram and Facebook and our for our meetings. 
but internally there could be full-blown chaos and a full-blown mess going on up there. So I do think leaders have to lead by example and be open to talking about mental fitness and mental health in their organization, because then people will realize, oh, this is, we're normalizing the conversation and there's nothing wrong with me if I'm feeling down or depressed or anxious, if I'm having a hard time getting out of bed, like our leaders talking about it and even acknowledging some of their struggles. Like sometimes when I've done these sessions, I even ask the leaders to share a little bit about some challenges they've had. And some of them will, like some CEOs will actually share it or like the, call it, the whole company's hearing it. And can you imagine the company like, wow, it's okay. Even highly successful people can go through this. Nothing wrong with us, right? And like, so your other question, the difference between mindfulness and meditation. And I think some different people may define it differently, right? Because I don't like to say like, I have the only answer, right? So the meditate, so mindfulness can be implemented into many components of our life. I could be mindful of how I talk to you. I could be mindful of the food that I'm putting into my body. I could be mindful of how I'm walking down the street that I'm not looking at this. I'm running into the middle of the street and about to get hit by a car, right? Meditation is the actual act of sitting down and breathing exercises and focusing exercises for your mind, right? So sometimes people say, well, I go to the gym and for me, that's my meditation. I'm like, that's good. That's good for your physical body, but, and it will be good for the mind. But when you actually sit down in some stillness and try to bring your mind to the present moment and see how long you're successful at holding there, can you even hold it there for more than three seconds? You'll notice the mind just like gone. You won't even realize until five seconds later. That's how sneaky it is. Hmm. And to recognize when it's gone, it's like the ultimate ninja warrior. It's just goes, you're trying and it's gone and you think you're still trying when it's already planning your next vacation. And then you're bringing it back. You're like, oh my God, how did it do that? And then you think you got it back. It's already gone. Thinking about why she said something to me two days ago. And I really didn't appreciate that, right? So that is meditation. Bringing it to the present moment, taking deep breaths, really in filling up your lungs, exhaling, your, exhaling out, or feeling grateful for things happening in your life. All of this actively is, in my opinion, meditation. And I love the uh, the one that you do, the three seconds, four seconds, five seconds. On the basis that your brain, it's the one time your brain will be focused, they'll be saying, hold on, are you going to take another breath? Because like, I love that. That's a, It's a great example of training. So do you believe from all your training that you, you're really good at this now? You keep your thoughts under control. Everything is good. Are you perfection personified? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know. I wish I could say I was, but I think I'm a work in progress still. <laughs> I think we all are. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's how we have to see it. And, you know, a lot of times people will tell me, oh, I tried meditation. It didn't work. I wasn't good at it. I'm like, wait, so does that mean, so you stop? They're like, yeah. I'm like, so that, does that mean if you've eaten junk food a few times, you're not good at eating and you've stopped eating? Or does that mean like if you had a few bad nights sleep, that means you stopped sleeping? Or if you went to a restaurant, didn't like the food, have you stopped going out to eat altogether? Yeah. I'm like, when have you stopped one something because it, you didn't have a good experience with it? I'm like, and how do you know you're not good at it? How do you know it didn't actually benefit you? You may not even realize that you were benefited by it because sometimes the benefit may not show up for a few weeks. Absolutely. And the final question, by the way, men versus women. Women seem to be more open to this. What is wrong with us men? Why, why can't we get our heads around this, literally? Well, I think that 
maybe, maybe it's because throughout our life, we've been taught to be tough and to push down pain and to suck it up and to be a man about it, right? And, and I think that maybe is leading to an unhealthy understanding of how men are supposed to deal with their emotions. So that, I mean, I believe that the statistic is that more, many more men commit suicide than women do, mm-hmm. right? And it's because we never fully express our emotions. And I think more men have heart attacks than women do as well. Yeah. And it's because we're allowing our emotions to pile up and I think it's partly because the dialogue that's out there is that men aren't supposed to show weakness, men aren't supposed to show emotions, men aren't supposed to do all of these things. But I think not showing, we're human beings. We have tears, we have tear ducts, mm. but we think it's wrong to use them. No, they're there, right? We're, we have a heart, we have emotions, and we need to be able to express them in a healthy and positive way at the right time with the right person. If we can do that, then we'll get more in touch with ourselves, where I think women are much more in touch with themselves. They, they have an easy time talking to each other about their feelings and their emotions, what they're going through. And because now there's an openness. So they're also open to when they talk about mindfulness and meditation. That means going inward. Well, they're already going inward. So this is something that'll help them maybe do it better. Yeah. So I think uh, maybe the dialogue needs to change. A little bit like when men go through something difficult, we just need to go jogging or go punch a bag or go play some sport. We can do that, but let's also take time to reflect, to talk about it with someone who can help us process that. I think that can help us be healthier, especially in the workplace. Imagine a person, a man who's a leader, hasn't worked through their emotions and now they've got people reporting to them like, gosh, how are they gonna, is it all gonna come out on these poor people who are working for this leader? Ooh, it could be scary. And I think with the new generation coming into the workplace, they're not willing to accept what people did before. Uh, they want a new form of engagement, and that is enlightened leadership. So I think uh, the best way of being an enlightened leader is to become more enlightened about ourselves and uh, manage our minds because they're there as a, a a wonderful friend rather than an enemy. Pandit, uh, an absolute joy to speak to you. It was a brilliant book. I really enjoyed it. It's full of so many good takeaways that are really handy to to implement. And then the story about your own life at the end is uh, very interesting. And 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 I, I love the fact that, you know, you've now you're using all those skills in your new life um, uh, after monkhood. I don't know if that's the right word yes. to say, but listen, <laughs> well, thank you so much. And, and hopefully we will see you in Europe someday soon. All right. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Sean. Wow. Well, we went a little bit deep today, but I hope you enjoyed it and have learned a lot from that interview. I know I certainly have learned some techniques that you can implement straight away to take a little more control of your mind, be more like a bee than a fly and less windscreen wipers. My deepest appreciation to Pandit and remember his new book, Mindfulness for the Wandering Mind, is out now. As I say, it's available online and in all good bookshops, and I'm sure even some bad ones too. As always, if you have any ideas on what topics you'd like us to feature on our next podcast, do get in touch. You can follow and connect with me on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, work healthy.